if you've done the training so that your base level of CCNE, concentration, clarity, equanimity, is high enough, then when the fear of corona or death at your deathbed, when that fear comes up, it will be different for you, not a source of suffering or not as much a source of suffering. So mindfulness can definitely help with fear, even strong, justified fear. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with Shinzen Young. Shinzen is an American mindfulness teacher, author, and neuroscience research consultant. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation, known as unified mindfulness, has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I am very excited today to share an interview with somebody that I've been wanting to have not just an interview with, but a dialogue with for a very long time. And fortunately, one of my HLC3 students, um, Michael Holt, is also a student of Shinzen Young. So Shinzen and I have been connected through Michael Holt, and we finally get a chance to, you know, spend some time together and share as much love and wisdom and life experience as we can with the audience. So Shinzen, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to share you with my audience on Living 4D. Well, thank you uh, for giving me the bully pulpit to uh, share my ideas slash bloviate. (laughs) You know, one of the things I love, Shinzen, uh, my first exposure to your work was your audio book program, The Science of Enlightenment. I also have two copies of the book. Um, I went, I've went through it two times and, and taken copious notes. And I absolutely just felt this amazing harmony with you because I love the fact that you mix um, science principles and mathematics as well as deep spiritual teachings to get, you know, you do a great job of nourishing the left and right brain hemispheres, which I really, really appreciate. Well, yeah, I I think that is sort of my life exploration. I was born in the West, but uh, Los Angeles, California, to be specific. I conceived this passionate interest in Asian languages and cultures at a pretty early age, early teens. And I went to Asian ethnic school, and I had Asian private tutors in the languages of Asia, which was an interest not shared by the public at all. Yeah, I I can imagine. Well, you folks don't know, but I can actually remember when the expression made in Japan was a joke. People would like pull your collar and they'd look at it and they'd say made in Japan, even if it wasn't. And that was a put down. Yeah. Asia was not respected in general. So I got interested in Asian languages by seeing Asian martial arts films because my best friend in middle school was uh, third-generation Japanese-American. So then that led to interest in the only part of Asia where you can still live in a period piece movie in the modern world, which is Buddhist temples. Right. 
so I got in, I lived in a Buddhist temple for a month in Japan. And then I lived in a Buddhist temple for three years in Japan. And um, that second time around was with ordination as a monk. So the Asian martial arts led to an interest in Asian language and culture broadly, which led to an interest in contemplative practices, which are highly systematic in Asian culture. Yes. Much more than in the rest of the world. But I was always sort of interested in science from an early age also. And that's when I completed my basic monastic training for J in Japan at Mount Koya, that was that three-year uh, stint <laughs> as yes. a monk, it was time to leave Asia, it was time to come back to the West. And I felt that I had completed the job of studying Asian culture in that I had found the one thing that Asia did better than anyone else, number one, and number two is of significance to everyone else, not just Asia. So what is the univ universally important thing that Asia did better than anyone, roughly speaking? By Asia, we mean India and China, roughly speaking. Probably working together, get a job done. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to say um, what they did better than anyone else is develop a systematic way to train focus skills. Yeah, that's great. And that that is universally important for all human cultures, not just Asian cultures. So what, the, the, what was the most important thing that they did better than anything? That would be the peak of the mountain called Asia from a certain, very limited point of view, but from a certain point of view. So if we take that point of view, I'm standing on, I have now, I'm now standing on the peak of Asia in the sense that, oh, this is, this is it. This is the essence, really. They did this better than anyone else, historically. And it's hugely important to everyone else moving forward. Yes, it is. So now I stand on the pinnacle of this mountain called Asia. And I ask myself, do I see another mountain peak that impresses me comparably? And I get only one answer. Yes, there's something else that is just as impressive. It's something that another culture did better than anyone else. <laughs> and it is of universal human importance. So <clears throat> we need a name for things. So the thing that Asia did better than anyone else, and but is universally important to all human beings, let's just call that contemplative practice, but let's decide to call it practice for short. Or for longer, we could call it contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth or contemplative-based personal growth. We could call it that. We could just call it contemplative practice. We could call it meditation, but that has certain limiting connotations. Yeah. We could call it mindfulness, but that has certain limiting con connotations. We could call it contemplative practice. 
And that's okay, except even that, actually, contemplative is actually technically a Christian term. It's, um, the, uh, that has connotations also. So to have less, conno- less limiting connotations, let's just call it practice, but we sort of know what we're talking about. Yes. Things that people call meditation, uh, mindfulness, etc. What do they all have in common? Well, they all develop attentional skills and use those skills to improve happiness. Yes, they all develop the individual. Well, and we can talk about the dimensions of the individual. Uh, We'll put a pin in that. Mm -hmm. So to complete the thought, what's the other thing? Well, the other thing I could call modern science, uh, as opposed to science, because science doesn't belong to one culture. Science is all humans. All humans contributed to science. But something happened about 400 years ago, roughly. And it happened in Western Europe. Descartes. Well, more Newton. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So that, but really... We're talking, Newton was, like he said, he stood on the shoulders of giants. So the giants are Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, and Copernicus, but also very much people like Francis Bacon and Al Hazen, who was actually an Islamic scientist. But I credit people like Bacon and Alhazen with contributing the notion of, uh, to the notion of the scientific method. So this full-blown scientific method, modern science, is only about 400 years old. Although science, as I say, East, West, ancient, modern, all human cultures contributed. But about 400 years ago, in Western Europe, but somewhat based on Islamic medieval achievements, about 400 years ago, roughly, something extraordinary happened. The ability to create idealized mathematical structures and the ability to create idealized formulations about the mechanisms whereby the physical world works was, so the first one is a mathematical intuitions, and the second one entails physical intuitions, but at a highly abstracted level. Those forms of abstract thinking, those abilities, were combined with experimentation to create the current way of doing science, which is called the scientific method. Those three things had to come together and cross-fertilize to create modern science. I, I look out and I say, oh, modern science. That was magic. That, yes, it, it's sort of a certain culture at a certain time, but, oh my God, it's the whole world now because the scientific paradigm is the modern paradigm. So the natural question for me was, 
what's the relationship between these two pinnacles of human achievement? And I've spent my entire life exploring that. So you could say I have a high degree of confidence in speaking about two things, practice, a.k.a. contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth, and um, modern science. Yeah, I'm grateful that you do. You know, as I'm listening to you, what rises into my mind is what you're describing as this emergence of science correlates very well with the emergence of uh, the mental structure in Gebser's model of structure stages of consciousness. Well, I haven't heard someone use the word Gebser, the name Gebser, in a very long time. I study a lot. That is not a name one hears in ordinary conversations. Yes, I noticed from the great list of questions that you sent me that there is considerable study behind this. That always, <laughs> of course, is a good sign. Yes, uh, and I'd like to just interject to you. When I was 12, my mother switched from Christianity to the Self-Realization Fellowship of Paramahansa really? Yogananda. So I began working with monks and learning to meditate. And then I spent my 15th summer in camp with the monks uh, for a summer camp and got, mm -hmm. got all the, all the questions I didn't get asked answered. Cause I had a lot of deep questions from Christianity that troubled me very deeply. Wow. And I found that the monks could give me clear answers. They didn't avoid me. They didn't reprimand me for asking questions. They were very calm, very centered, very lucid. And I'll never forget the first time I went into a self-realization fellowship uh, temple meeting. And I, even as an eight-year-old child, I, I felt very conflicted about all this sort of hell and damnation. God loves you, but God will burn you in hell. And so I'm sitting in my first temple meeting, like, like a typical Sunday uh, session, and they begin the prayer. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, Paramahansa <laughs> Yogananda, Sri Yukteswar, Lahiri Mahashai, Babaji, Krishna, saints and sages of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. And it was like lightning went through me. I went, I'm home. I'm safe. I knew at that moment that I was at where I was supposed to be, even as a 12-year-old. So I'm sharing this because the basis of my life's work began in self-realization fellowship and then i studied world religion and i've studied i won't bore you with the long details but i studied everything i've had to study to understand human beings because i specialize in medical failures and people that are having crisis situations such as diseases whatever so i've had to study all the things everything always leads back to belief systems and so what that led into is i got into Native American shamanism. I, I, I did an internship to learn how to use plant medicines for a year. And I've conducted over 400 ceremonies using Native American healing approaches with plant wow. medicines. Do you, uh, was that a particular tribal lineage or more general Native American well, my, my medicine man spirit guide license is through the Nemanha band, which is the lineage of Chief Joseph, the Nespers Indians. Wow. 
But what I do is really a mix of modern science, modern energy healing, the use of things like tuning forks, uh, crystals, uh, healing wands, rattles, drums, uh, archetypal investigation, a lot of Jungian psychology, looking at all diet and lifestyle factors. Uh, I have a system I call the four doctors, so I break life into four categories. Dr. Happiness deals with the mind and taking responsibility for creating happiness and happy making activities in your life. Dr. Movement deals with the movement of the body and all the four doctors deal with the physical, emotional, and mental and spiritual, but I'm only giving you the basics here. Dr. Diet relates to learning how to eat for your individual needs, not following diets and listening to experts, but learning how to tap into your own body's wisdom to determine what you need to keep your body healthy and balanced. And then Dr. Quiet deals with rest and introspection. So my system that I developed basically takes each individual and looks at them from the air element mind, the fire element movement, the earth element diet and home and relationships and the water element rest, introspection and inner development. And of course, four, I'm guessing, is something you might have picked up from Native American. <laughs> uh, well, four, four is the number of completion. And, and uh, you know, so I studied a lot of Jung's work and I've studied the number four quite a lot. Oh, Jung relates it to completion? Yes. Yeah. Be, you know where he got that idea? Uh, it could have been a lot of places knowing Jung. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's Pythagorean mathematics yeah it could be yeah because they uh i think they had a thing about why four because like completion right uh that makes sense well also there's four seasons to the year so i think and there's four directions to space unless <laughs> you know right depending on how you want to and do you it. could say there's four stages to life childhood uh you know, uh, I call, I break the stages of life into four stages, archetypally, the child, the warrior, the king and the queen, and then the wise man and wise woman. Ah, that's cool. The best evidence that I have that the Czech approach to health and wellness works is my own body mind. I haven't missed a day of work due to illness in my entire 36 year career, even though I've spent a tremendous amount of time working with sick people. It's not only that I live my four-doctor system, but I practice awareness of the six foundation principles of the Czech approach, one of which is nutrition. Sound nutrition requires top-quality organic produce, and I know of no company that makes better food for our bodies and medicinal use than Organifi. One of their products I think is really important for long-term health of the immune system is Organifi Immunity. Organifi Immunity is a simple immune-boosting superfood complex which can fight the symptoms and duration of colds and flus. This new formula by Organifi combines helpful nutrients you may already know, like zinc, vitamin C, and vitamin D3, with revolutionary new discoveries like ultrasonic-extracted mushroom beta-glycans. It's tradition and modern science combined. Go to Organifi and check out their Immunity Blend, an amazing product line of highly nutritious quick and easy to use products. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. To get your Living 4D with Paul Check discount at checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K 20. 
That's capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20, to get your discount on checkout. To get to know Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, listen to my podcast number 64, Drew Canoli, UBU. And I think you'll really enjoy Drew and the values that he lives by. I hope you enjoy. I always love your feedback. You know uh, why Aristotle? Uh, Aristotle had an interesting idea why there's exactly four elements. Of course, there aren't exactly four elements. There are a hundred, <laughs> almost 120 elements, right? But yeah, I think they, uh, he was using the term element though as an alchemist diff- would use them. That well, or as maybe the other way around, the alchemists then base themselves on his uh, his original thinking. So his original thinking was that, well, I'm going to paraphrase, okay? I, I, these aren't the words of Aristotle, but if I were to uh, project on Aristotle, if you have nothing, it's that's not going to be very interesting. There's not much we can say. If you just have one thing, that's not very interesting either. There's not much we can say. In fact, nothing we can say. If you have two things that represent a binary contrast, well, now we can, we can start saying some things. But if we really want to get going, we should take that to a second order. There should be two ways of talking about two. Uh, there should be a, a, a basic binary distinction and then another binary distinction. Uh-huh. And then we've got four, and now we can get more interesting combinations that can create <clears throat> the seasons, the properties of the material world, and the uh, geometry of the universe and so forth so if you they contrasted a natural contrast particularly if you live in the mediterranean is hot versus cold yeah uh, actually that's anywhere really i guess but then they also noticed weather would be moist versus dry yes and then so you look at the earth, well, it's warm. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, it's cold. Cold. And, but it's also moist. Uh, moist. Yeah. That's right. And then fire would be hot and dry. And dry, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So now you've got, you're often running with metaphorically f- four elements, but really just a fourfold contingency table of binary contrasts yes. in, the, in the margins. Yeah. And so what's very interesting to me is moisture usually entails cohesion, yes. whereas dryness usually uh, entails free, that something is freeable. That's mm-hmm. a great word in Latin, freeable from Latin. It means you can easily crumble it. Yeah, it allows separation. Yeah, a lot of separation versus cohesion. On the other hand, so separation, cohesion, cohesion's sort of a contractive flavor. Mm-hmm. Separations, maybe, you know, separating, expansive, maybe. Yeah. On the other hand, 
things, you heat them up, they tend to expand. You cool them down, they tend to contract. So actually, from a, if we wanted to create a highly abstract revisioning of the four elements, going back to what was apparently the original first principle reasoning of Aristotle, I think he inherited the four elements, maybe from India, or maybe it's the other way around. Who knows, right? Well, a lot yeah, al- sharing. alchemy is pretty, uh, I think it's even pre-Aristotelian in Egypt, in uh, India. Uh, you know, I have my own system of alchemy called Czech Life Process Alchemy, and I've studied alchemy for a very long time. And the roots of it go quite deep, as I'm sure you know. But, uh, uh, you know, I think alchemy was in the... Uh, Egyptian regions and and the Middle East for quite a while, uh, even before the Western alchemists started being known from what I can tell. People were playing around. Yeah. Although, uh, as far as I can tell, Greece had a huge influence on all subsequent alchemy that existed in the Western part of the Eastern Hemisphere. There were other things, but anyway... What's interesting to me is that if we go back to first principles, they're really just two flavors of expansion and contraction. Yin and Yang. The thermal, uh, yeah. So his idea was, see, the Chinese idea is, well, you just need the two, yin, yeah, <laughs> yin, yang. Aristotle said, well, why don't, if two's good, then two twos is even better. <laughs> so that gives us, the Western system, which is based on twos and fours, as opposed to the Chinese system, which is actually based on fives. Yeah, uh, the, the uh, earth, water, fire. Well, they, yeah, they have their own names for it, but they include the fifth element, ether or space, which I think is is the backdrop upon which it all emerges. So I think actually, some- strictly speaking, that's not the traditional Chinese system. That's that that system does exist in China, but that came about later under Buddhist influence. Uh, The original Chinese system had uh, uh, the tree element and metal element, stuff like that. It was in fives. But Mm -hmm. you're right. It's all sort of the same idea. You you look at these archetypes. So anyway, I was just mentioning, I think it's sort of interesting that you're attracted to fours because I'm very attracted to fours also. And a little bit because of Aristotle and the idea of two twos. Uh, but that sort of brings me back to your original question, just to complete it, uh, who am I? So I'm a guy with two. Um, <laughs> the, I've got this lifelong exploration of practice and a lifelong exploration of science. That's two things, but that immediately generates two other things an investigation of the two relationships. Yes. How does science relate to practice? Right. How does practice relate to science? And out of that, what new thing for the world might arise, not will arise, only an idiot would claim that to be a prophet, to know the future. I'm not saying will arise. I'm saying could arise. And let's see what that looks like. Well, you, Uh, oh, go ahead. The arise means 
come into awareness? Best, <clears throat> no. It, you, I'm looking upon uh, practice from two points of view. Practice is a human experience, and practice is a cultural institution. There are systems of practice that are taught. People pay for them. <laughs> They're supported. That's a cultural institution. Um, science also is a human experience, and it's a human institution. As a human experience and as a human institution, how can science help practice? As a human experience, as a human institution, how can practice help science? If the answer is there's a natural way and the effect will be big, that is what they call a game changer. Yeah. You've heard the phrase, Melanie Klein's phrase, this changes everything. Yes. So this would be actually not a game changer in the sense that it changes what the rules are or even how, or changes how the game is played. It actually changes what the game is on this planet. The game from the beginning of the first closed biofilm with its own autocatalytic reactions to now. So that's a, probably a couple billion years. Yeah. The game has been competition for limited resources. Yeah. What I'm describing for humans would not replace that game, but it would add a new dimension to the game, which would change what the game is fundamentally. So it could be very big, and I'm a big picture guy. I'm a go big or go home guy. Yeah, so, uh, am, I, so am I, as you can tell by the questions. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, we have some twos in common in tarot my um soul path and life path when you do the calculations in tarot i'm a 22 which is a master number in numerology which is a four zero so i'm the emperor is my soul path and the personality path is the fool and 22s are the people that through tarot philosophy have already lived all the cycle of the archetypes and they come back as teachers to because they have experienced all this different stuff. So I think that's where I kind of get my big picture view and, and my sense of this is how this fits together. That goes there. And if you don't understand that, you're probably going to get less than optimal results. Excellent. So uh, uh, I'm just curious, um, you know, the whole coronavirus thing's going crazy. And, and I, from your perspective as a spiritual teacher and a well-developed human being, I'm curious to know how how real of an issue do you feel it is relative to something like the seasonal flu? Uh, what are your thoughts regarding the progressive loss of speech and free, uh, loss of freedom of rights and all the background issues that underpin the whole so-called epidemic or pandemic and how it's being handled? And what do you feel an event like this offers uh, as a spiritual from a per, from a spiritual perspective? Sure. So I spent quite a bit of time explaining what I meant when I said I'm a big picture guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a reason for that. Good. There's a fundamental theme 
in mathematics, particularly in the area of geometry, more abstract parts of geometry called topology. Yes, I'm familiar. Um, So it's the interplay of local and global. So local is what is the small picture. If you look in the vicinity of a certain point in the space, in a little neighborhood of the space, right, you get the local view. But there are things that are universal to the entire space that actually are not evident at, or are not so evident at the local view. At the local view, they tend the global view tends to be forgotten. It's kind of like if but, you get too close to a television, you, you don't see anything but dots of light. But if you get back, you, you get the image. That's a very interesting metaphor, actually. Um, what you said is very interesting and is an important metaphor. If we have time, we can discuss it. It's quite useful. Um, but it's actually not what I was thinking of when I said local global. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, that's all right. We're we're here to share. <laughs> well, that's why I wrote this down because it lends a certain symmetry to a certain other idea I've been playing with. So mm-hmm. this is, that I I hadn't thought of that symmetry till you just mentioned this. So let me tell you what I meant by local global. <laughs> what I meant was specific instance versus general principle. I see. Okay, so what is the COVID-19 pandemic? Meaning the whole gestalt, the whole system, um, the disease, the social and political and emotional and behavioral impact of the situation, etc. Let's, let's take the whole enchilada. Yes, please do. And and ask ourselves, what is this generically? <laughs> See, what happens is human beings have a tendency to be myopic, to focus on the specifics to the detriment of forgetting the generics. Now, focusing on the specifics is hugely important. I'm saying something else. I'm not saying it's not important. And remembering the generics is very important from the viewpoint of contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth, a.k.a. what I've chosen to call practice. Yes. From the viewpoint of practice, a practice should entail both ordinary happiness and extraordinary happiness. The difference, as I define them, is ordinary happiness is what people ordinarily call happiness. Extraordinary happiness is another part of happiness that in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, extraordinary happiness comes about as the result of a systematic practice. Now, it's true, extraordinary happiness can sum up come about without systematic practice. But usually the, the dimensions of happiness that I would call extraordinary 
they're named that because ordinarily people don't consider them. But they are also the deeper forms of happiness in that they are happiness independent of conditions, which, when well integrated, makes one better able to deal with conditions. Okay, that was a mouthful. That was a lot of words. Happiness independent of conditions, such that when it is integrated, um, empowers the ability to effectively take care of conditions, to manipulate conditions. So this thing that we could call synonymously happiness independent of conditions or happiness that tends to result, tends, I chose that word intentionally, tends to result from practice, or we could call it extraordinary in the sense that most people don't ordinarily consider it. So someone that has a practice, if that practice is balanced, it will entail elements of happiness associated with taking care of local conditions. Yes, they can handle and, they can handle the undulations of life without getting swept away by the, you know, your local issue, the the momentary. Well, I'm saying something slightly different. I'm saying you'll actually be able to take care of the momentary better by having gotten over the momentary in the right way in the moment. Yeah, okay, yeah, I understand your concept there. My main job is to do the opposite of what just about everyone else's main job is. So just, and both jobs are important. Just about everyone else's main job is get your shit together, take care of conditions, get the politics to be the way we want it, get the health of the world to be the way we want it, get my personal economic and social status to be the way I want it. These are all absolutely legitimate concerns. That's called taking care of business. And most people, their job is to take care of business and, or to take care of the local picture and to help other people take care of the local picture. And great. My specialty is different because my specialty is contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth both practicing it and teaching it. So when I teach others, mostly what I do is get them to remember that whatever the uh, specific that needs to be addressed, let's not forget that these are specific instances of more general principles and let's always work on the general principles. So you gave me a list of things. What about the nature of the uh, medical issue itself? What about the political fallout? What about the social fallout? What about the uh, this? What about the that? All of that is actually not in my area of knowledge. That's not my specialty. That's other people's expertise because those are all local issues. Shinzen Young's teaching include the science of enlightenment, becoming awake, breaking through difficult emotions, working effectively with the mind, and skillful application of practice. 
One thing all these practices require is discipline, consistent participation in an effective practice. And we all know how challenging it can be to be consistently disciplined with our health and growth practices when we're in pain. I've had days when I just had to work through a lot of discomfort in my body so I could be consistent. And I've found being consistent much easier to do with the healing benefits of certified organic CBD products. One Farm's excellent CBD oils and products are an essential part of my natural medicine kit, and I use them regularly to support my body, healing, and growth processes. One Farm has a variety of CBD oils, gummies, healing creams, skin support, and more. You've really got to check out their products and how beautifully they grow and prepare them. As a sponsor of Living 4D with Paul Check, One Farm generously offers all of you a 15% discount on any purchase by going to https colon forward slash forward slash onefarm.com forward slash check. That's https colon forward slash forward slash onefarm.com forward slash c-h-e-k. No discount code is needed. Just follow the link. You'll know you're there because you're going to see pictures of me and some of my podcasts featured there and your 15% discount will automatically be added to your order. As always, I love your feedback on these amazing products. Enjoy. Well, I think what do you feel the event offers from a spiritual perspective is ah, should, should be in your ballpark. <laughs> that, now that is in my wheelhouse. That's question C. <laughs> uh, so I can definitely say something about that. But first of all, as someone who has read a lot and interacted a lot, I am sure you have noticed that a lot of breakdown in communication occurs because people don't carefully define their terminology. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure that that is abundantly evident for you. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but that, That's the nature of some of my other questions. <laughs> but the problem is people tend to be impatient, and it actually takes time to read the whole Wikipedia disambiguation page. Uh, And to follow all those links, right? So people at some point just sort of lose patience and they just move on to something else. And I haven't finished my disambiguation yet. (laughs) Yeah. So let's be very clear about what we mean by contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth, a.k.a. contemplative practice, a.k.a. practice, a.k.a. things like meditation, mindfulness, and so forth. So we, we want to be able to talk about this rather broad category of human experience that's instantiated in cultural memes and institutions. We want to be able to talk about this broad category in a way that we can cover all of its specific instances. So we have to have a very general model. Yes. On the other hand, if our model is too general, it will cover any form of psycho-spiritual growth, not just contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth. So we don't want it to be too big, or it will be describing something bigger than what we're talking about. So it's a little bit like, Goldilocks, not too big, not too small, just right. (laughs) So here are some things that we can say are 
always elements in any uh, contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth practice. The first is there will always be a practice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, what does that mean? Relationship. Ah, ah, it's interesting you went there. That's actually not what I was thinking of, once again, although that's pretty important. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just defining what I mean by a practice. So there's always going to be at least one focus technique that a person has that will be analogous to a physical exercise. In that, if you do this focus technique on a regular basis, under competent instruction, for a long, long time. In the exercise world, we say, if you've been incompetently instructed, do as instructed for a long, long time, we virtually guarantee a positive effect on your body. Yeah. So, the fabric of your body will change. Depending on the exercise, your body will get stronger, it will become more flexible, its endurance will increase, and so forth. Yes. So, in fact, there's several dimensions of change that we can commonly expect to see, to observe as the result of systematic physical exercise. Now, of course, a person may cross-train. They may have more than one exercise. They do. In fact, very often they will. So you need at least one exercise, and then you need a training schedule. You practice it for 10 minutes each day, and then every month you practice it for four hours unbroken in a micro-retreat. Or every year you go off or go online to a group retreat that maybe four or five days or a week or something like that. And then you have a trainer, and at some point, you'll do best if you also try to teach others. Very basic principle, Mm -hmm. sometimes called uh, Feynman's principle. Um, Best way to study is teach someone else. It's Feynman's, uh, Richard Feynman, an icon of my youth. Uh, you're uh, another LA guy. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've I've studied him quite a bit. I'm hip with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. So anyway, Feynman's method is that you learn best by teaching. So a training system in contemplative practice has four pillars: life practice, which is the training you do each day. Mm-hmm. Retreat practice, which is periods of intensive practice. Getting support, which is having at least one competent coach that you touch base with at least occasionally, maybe only once a year, but someone that is good. Yes. A professional mindfulness coach, for example. Uh, and then give support means, well, you try teaching others. So you make sure you've clarified it. You apply Feynman's principle, Feynman's method. So you have a set of focus techniques, meaning at least one. It's a non-empty set. You may have three or four or a lot more. And then you establish and maintain these, this training schedule for your whole life. All contemplative practices 
will entail at least one technique, and they'll entail one, two, three, or all four of the structures, the training schedules that I just mentioned. Uh-huh. So we can cover all contemplative practices by this definition. Except what do we mean by a focus technique? A focus technique is analogous to an exercise. It changes the fabric of your experience, the fabric of how see, hear, feel, think, speak, move arises for you, your input, your perceptual and expressional experience of being a human, which could also be called consciousness if you wanted, or awareness. Um, these, the f- so there are positive changes that accelerate with time, and we can classify, so we can say that all practice systems of the world will talk about something positive happening as the result of doing this focus technique. And they will imply that those, by positive, they mean related to human happiness. So there's always going to be a reason to have a technique set, which means an exercise set, and a training schedule for implementing those exercises. There's, there's got to be a reason in any contemplative system. Now, we need a classification that will cover all the reasons that anyone ever gave. Of course, not every system gives the reason, all of those reasons, but our wide paradigm, our model that can incorporate all the contempt, all the practice systems, all the things that are like meditation slash mindfulness, East, West, ancient, and modern. If we want to create a picture that can have a, a place for each one of those, then um, that's a pretty broad picture. So now we have to classify the reasons to do practice. If I had, if I could only use one phrase. The phrase would be to optimize happiness broadly and deeply defined. So I'm saying that happiness has a dimension called how broad it is, and happiness has a dimension called how deep it is. How deep it is is not how intense it is. How deep it is is how extraordinary it is, mm-hmm. how not ordinary it is. Right. So all contemplative traditions will either say, do this and you'll get, do these techniques or this technique with this training schedule, and it will increase your local ordinary happiness, or it will help global ordinary happiness, or it will help local extraordinary happiness, or it will help global extraordinary happiness. So that's four dimensions of happiness. One, two, three, or all four will be talked about in a contemplative system. Now, most of the traditional systems 
strongly emphasize extraordinary happiness at the local level. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's extraordinary happiness at the global level, and contemplative practice also helps with ordinary happiness. So now we have a complete picture of what we mean by a practice. Can we summarize this picture in four words? Yes. Develop the skills, optimize the happy. The four pillars that I mentioned are the structure that, that allows your technique to become more and more effective. And effective means that they uh, elevate potentially all four quadrants of felicity so that using uh, systematically cultivating focus skills directly or indirectly serves to improve every dimension of human happiness, not just a few, even though most of the contemplative traditions, I would say, tend to talk about extraordinary, extraordinary local, which means your mind and body getting liberated. But there's also helping other minds and bodies to get liberated, and there's helping other minds and bodies not get sick or have food. That's also, that's global ordinary happiness. And that's also part of the reason that I think a person should do these practices. So now, now you see the big picture. You know what I'm going to say about Corona. I have it. Let me take a guess. Go ahead. Listening to your model and just watching the visions rise up in my head as you speak. Uh, let's call humanity as one being, I see the being of humanity sitting in meditation and the coronavirus here represents a fly buzzing around the meditator's head, but the meditator keeps getting pulled out of its deeper state of connection and your global happiness into swatting at the fly and being frustrated because the fly keeps bothering it. Yep, that's great. I would have put it in much more abstract terms. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, actually, yours is better because it's tangible. I would just uh, extend the metaphor a little bit. This is interesting. Sitting in meditation. This is one of the reasons why this particular M word is sometimes not a good word, even though, of course, I and everyone else in my world use it all the time. The problem with the word meditation, the re reason I use practice instead of meditation, if, if I want to speak rigorously, but then of course I have to go through this whole elaborate definition of what I mean by practice, but the problem with the M word, uh, M meaning meditation in this case, is it does imply a connotation of what I would call practice in stillness. A person sitting, usually in a special posture, usually on the floor, usually with their eyes closed, maybe with some special relaxing music going on, 
or they're oming like uh, Don Draper at the end of Mad Men, <laughs> uh, that, that TV show. I don't know if you saw that, but no. if you haven't, you must see this program, dude. What's it um, called? What's the name Mad, of the show? Mad Men. Anyway, but here's the other thing. If someone had told me that in that I would live to see a, a North America, in the sense of U.S. and Canada, a North America where the psychotherapeutic establishment has been profoundly influenced by a practice from the East whereby um, the medical establishment has been profoundly influenced by the same practice from the East, where it's not only in the boardrooms, uh, it's not only in you know the therapy room and the doctor's office, it's also in the boardroom and the military training camps. And schools. Our, and our sports teams and our schools. And the, this is, it's called mindfulness. It is a science-informed contemplative practice. It's basically Buddhism modulo mythology. Yeah. You just mod out the mythology uh, and the speculation and the cultural baggage, if you mod that out, you reduce that to zero. In other words, that's what a math a geek would call mod out. Okay. <laughs> you mod that out. What you're left with is something um, not only compatible with science, but uh, mutually co-evolutionary with science. That's extraordinary, and that is now pervading all aspects of North America, therefore the world, slowly. I would have never thought, if you grew up in the U.S. in the 50s, I would have never thought that that change would happen here. The assumption was basically, how can I put it, uh, jingoism they copy us. There's nothing they have that, that we don't, that we need. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that was the U S I grew up in. Hi everybody. I'm super excited to share Symbiotica's amazing Sheila J mineral resin. You know, Sheila J minerals are one of the key mineral products used in Ayurvedic medicine to help people heal from a wide variety of dysfunctions and challenges and minerals and trace minerals are some of the most important hormone regulators in the body. What I did is I brought Shervine in here today, the founder of Symbiotica and all these products, to tell us a little bit more about what makes their Sheila J mineral products so unique. Our Symbiotica black gold, as we call it, is a complex mineral resin, and it's sourced from the highest elevations from all over the world. As you know, this is an Ayurvedic medicine known for thousands of years. It's the center point of the balance between mind, body, and spirit. This is one of the most powerful adaptogenic products available on the market. 
and it's shown to enhance our metabolism, directing our mitochondria to convert fats and sugars to create ATP, which is something missing in the Western diet. Shilajit in your body creates a whole new consciousness, upgrades every regulatory biological system in the body, and empowers you to get back to homeostasis levels. And it's very potent, so you don't need very much. In other words, one one order of this stuff, one package can go quite a long way, as I've found. It's super concentrated. It's like, you know, basically black gold. It's a tar resin, and it's so efficient. As soon as it gets into your body, it knows exactly what, what it's there to do, which is support your immune system and take acids out of your body, creating an alkaline state. Get on over to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And on checkout, use your code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15, to get your 15% discount. And while you're there, look at all the other amazing products. I've tried every one of these products. My family uses them. I love them, or I would not be sharing them with you now. Enjoy, and as always, send us your feedback. So anyway, Mad Men, this show, uh, culminates with the main protagonist, doing, quote, meditation, which gets me back to what I was saying, right? How it's portrayed is he's sitting with a group of very hippie-looking people. Uh, He's making a mudra with his hands, um, and he's got his eyes closed. The sun's coming up, and they're oming, and that's, quote, meditation. That certainly is part of meditation. That's called practice in stillness. <laughs> By me, that's like sitting still in a withdrawn situation. Uh, it's analogous to um, driving a car on an abandoned country road. There's not much pressure, so it's easier. But that would not be the image that I would want people to have, the mental picture of what, quote, meditation is or mindfulness is. The image I would prefer that people have would be a a good sweaty workout, (laughs) a workout for concentration power, a workout for sensory clarity, and a workout for equanimity. Those are the three core attentional skills that I believe are either individually or in combination, at least one of them always present, talked about as being developed by the focus technique. Contemplative practice or practice is, doesn't have to just be done in sitting still. It can be done in any kind of life activity. Whenever you're intentionally exercising one or a combination of those three focus skills, C, C, and E, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, concentration is the ability to focus on what you deem relevant. Sensory clarity is the ability to untangle the the strands of what you're experiencing in the moment. And equanimity is the ability to allow experience to expand and contract without inappropriately interfering with it. It's a kind of openness in the sensory and expressive channels. So 
in any event, think you you had the image of okay, you, it's because you said sitting, coupled with the M word meditation. I would slightly change that metaphor. You're not yes, you're meditating, or yes, you're doing mindfulness, or call it any of the other things I just said. But you're not necessarily sitting. <laughs> you're 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 doing mindfulness. Okay, and then the thing about the fly is that you actually have two goals with the fly. One is deal effectively with the fly if possible. The other is not have your happiness be dependent on being able to effectively deal with the fly because we can't always effectively deal with every situation that comes up, which then brings me back to my original comment about I'm going to be the big picture guy because most people will have something to say about the questions that you asked me initially, that list of things, the social, political, medical, etc. Yeah. So that's not in my area of confidence or competence. So I've actually have nothing to say except the obvious, which is don't be indifferent to that. Beyond that, I actually have no specific expert knowledge. But extraordinary happiness, also known as happiness independent of conditions, gives us the ability to optimally deal with conditions. This is counterintuitive. That's why I repeat it over and over again. The assumption is if my happiness does not depend on doing something about the impact of corona, if my happiness does not depend on what happens with corona, then I'm going to be indifferent. Yeah, more stable. Well, what people think is I'll be indifferent if I transcend. But if you integrate transcendence, if you if your happiness, you're the kind of person whose happiness is not dependent on what happens with corona or what happens with the world, including what happens in your personal life. If you have an extra, a, a contact with extraordinary happiness, the tendency is to think that then, oh, the person is going to be indifferent to the world. They're not going to take any actions. But that extraordinary happiness when it is integrated into the larger happiness matrix, gives you a place to function from that can help you take care of business better. So I can describe to you how not to suffer because of anything that might happen due to the coronavirus. It seems that if you're in that place of deeper happiness you're referring to, you can approach this kind of an event from a state of equanimity and therefore your response to the specific situation, be it what's happening in your life or what's happening in the neighborhood is not going to be something you engage from a place of fear or stress reaction or programmed reflex. 
Exactly. Or the language I would use is your response will be improved, ultimately optimal. And as far as conditional happiness goes, well, that's the best we can do. So how to be happy independent of conditions, corona being a condition, in a way that makes you better able to take care of conditions. This sounds like a good plan because it allows us to sort of have our cake and eat it too. (laughs) But, and this is a big, big but, what I just said, I'm going to tell you the secret. I like that. Go for it. Uh, Well, that's the thing though. I already told you the secret. So did every, so is everyone. So uh, you already heard the secret. The reason that I said I'm going to slip you the secret or put it in those words was as soon as you say something like that. Get someone's attention. (laughs) Well, you, what they think is you're going to tell them something, some piece of information, some tip, some magic mahavakya in Sanskrit. That means like this cosmic aphorism. And now that I've heard this, I'm going to be happy independent of conditions because they slipped me the secret. Yeah. No, 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 hell no. (laughs) There's no great aphorism that I'm going to give you that you can take home with you and now you're good and it was worth the price of admission. Because all of these things are ideas. Ideas are great. They are analogous to um, a menu in a restaurant. Nowadays they come with pictures Um, that's great. Pretty pictures, good sounding nutrition. You cannot eat the menu. It's a fundamental category mistake. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, doesn't. Yeah. In other words, the idea is not the nutrition. It's not the process. (laughs) It's a picture of the nutrition. Yeah. Uh, now here's the thing. Every now and again, a human being might attain what I call extraordinary happiness or happiness independent of conditions or the happiness associated with the ability to escape into life or fully experience each moment or be in the moment uh, or be in a mindful state or be, that is to say, in a state of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. All of these are perfectly synonymous, at least in my book. The thing is, though, although every now and again, a person might come to that, let's just call it extraordinary happiness. It's also paradoxical. It's both full and empty at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. Statistically, most people, most human beings, at least in more recent times, I don't know about pre-Neolithic, But most human beings will not experience extraordinary happiness until the 
very end of their life, if then, unless they have a practice. If you don't have a practice, everything you just heard is wonderful. It's the menu. Yeah. Do you have at least one focus technique? One technique that can be done in stillness or motion that elevates your base level of concentration power, which is how concentrated you are in ordinary life when you're not particularly trying to be concentrated, elevates your base level of sensory clarity, your ability to untangle what is inner, what is outer, what is visual, what is auditory, what is somatic, what is mind, what is body, your ability to allow sensory experience to come and go without push and pull in daily life, no matter how valenced hedonically towards pleasure, pain, physical, emotional, mental, it may be the ability to allow that uh, to come and go in daily life with, without interfering in, uh, in the slightest and also without making an effort to not interfere which is your base level of equanimity. So how mindful you are, your base level of mindful awareness is how concentrated, clear, and equanimous you are in ordinary life when you're not particularly trying to make an effort to be that way. That exponentially grows with time. One of the good things about the COVID virus is now every human being understands what an exponential curve, a hockey stick curve, a snowball curve looks like and why it has that form. Uh, just look at the <laughs> corona <laughs> uh, spread in any of the countries and you see what we mean by an exponential curve. Yeah. So good news, my, your base level of mindful awareness will grow exponentially if and probably only if you have at least one technique, you practice it daily in a systematic way, in a formal and also in ordinary life circumstance. You occasionally do retreats, retreat-type practice. I mean silent retreat where you're just doing practice. Micro-retreat might be four hours. Larger retreat might be four days. Do that at least occasionally. Get support from a competent coach. That means a mindfulness coach or a contemplative practice coach of some ilk. Try teaching a little bit on your own. Maintain that for your entire life. You have a practice. My strongest recommendation is not to be interested in great ideas, but to establish a, a Establishing a practice is what's going to do it for you in the long term. It's going to make it likely that the transcendence that some human beings experience in the last few minutes, hours, days, or sometimes weeks and months of their life, some, some humans, they do come to extraordinary happiness at the end. Many don't, but... Uh, my strongest recommendation is come to that as quickly as possible so that the rest of life can be lived optimally. 
So if you can tie that into the coronavirus issue, because we're dealing with a world population in which probably a f- small fraction of 1% fits the bill of a practice based on your guidelines. So that's the way I look at it. Interest, opportunity, necessity. Right now, the world has the necessity for this practice. Right. It also has the opportunity because people are at ha- home. have to in seclusion. So the job of people like you and me that understand this, our job is to make as much lemonade out of this lemon as we can. Yes, I agree. That's why so many teachers are going now to online programs. My retreats that I had to cancel residentially that we started to run online now, of course, they're getting huge participation around the world because people are motivated. Hopefully, what this does is it reminds people of the big picture. Yeah. Don't live under the sword of Damocles where your happiness is dependent on conditions. At any time, that sword could fall. Life is just a telephone call away. Life is just a banana peel slip away. Don't let your happiness be so... Fragile. So fragile is exactly the word. Thank you. And remember that by happiness, I don't just mean local happiness of one mind and body. I also mean that there's a global dimension involved involving action and service. And, but very importantly, I don't just mean happiness called getting conditions to be favorable. Right. I'm also talking about the happiness that comes when you can have a complete sensory experience of any condition. And that entails a training of attentional skills. Yeah. And that entails, as most people on this call will know, training. That's the great thing about your audience. Um, As I understand it, they're mostly in the helping or physical coaching and those types of professions and in the health uh, area, is that correct? Yeah, well, it's it's a pretty big audience. Uh, it, it ranges from, you know, everybody at work, just like any radio station would be grabbing, but it also is a large population of people that practice holistic health in the medical profession, the allied medical profession, strength and conditioning professionals, massage therapy, uh, acupuncture, you know, the whole spread, really, of the allied and traditional health care. Professional. Yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, that all. That all makes sense. Hi, everybody. Part of being enlightened is being fully present with your own body and giving it what it needs. Countless people have digestion and eliminative challenges, and often take all sorts of pills, from antacids to heartburn medication to laxatives, but they seldom address the real issue. Having helped thousands of people heal their digestive limitations, I can assure you that one approach that is most commonly and consistently helpful are effective digestive enzymes combined with top quality probiotic support. The one company that I rely on for my digestive and body care enzymes is Bioptimizers, and all their products are top-notch and part of my family's approach to health and well-being. 
Living 4D with Paul Check listeners get a huge 26% discount on the upgraded digestion package consisting of four great Bioptimizers products that I use myself. Go to Bioptimizers.com, that's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, and use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 10 on checkout. That's Bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, and check 10 for your discount. For an amazing learning experience and to meet the co-founder of Bioptimizers, check out episode number 55, Wade Lightheart, and I think you'll be amazed at the depth and the wisdom of this beautiful man. Hope you enjoy the products. So Shenzhen, you know, it's really, it's been an interesting um, experience to hear your perspective on the coronavirus as a, you know, you're a Zen monk, right? Um, actually, I my ordination, where I got the Shinzen name, which is a Japanese monastic name, um, that's technically in something called Shingon, S-H-I-N-G-O-N, which is Japanese Vajrayana. Okay. Practice, uh-huh. which is essentially historically similar to, but not identical to, um, uh, to much of Tibetan practice. Right. Um, in so actually, lineage-wise, I belong to a sort of East Asian branch of the Vajrayana and the Vajrayana or diamond vehicle, sometimes also called tantric Buddhism or esoteric Buddhism or um, that form dominates in Tibet, but it is also known in Japan. And in the, um, in the sixties, I got interested in it um, because essentially uh, very few Western scholars were studying Japanese Vajrayana. Most of them, if they were interested in Vajrayana, it was uh, the Tibetan forms. So I wanted to make that my academic specialty. So technically, I'm actually in the Shingon lineage. Although you're right, I did have a lot of um, uh, influence from Zen practice, both when I lived in Japan and when I lived in other places. So there's that. But I would think of myself now as, <laughs> maybe this is a weird expression, but sort of post-Buddhist, or I guess I would say what post-Buddhist means is someone interested in the uh, co-evolution of science and practice. So that's a the strongest influences on me are from Buddhism, but I don't think I could say I'm a member of that religion per se. Yeah, that's all good. So really what I was driving at though is really what I'm taking away from our discussion so far, which has been centered around the issue that you feel competent to share on with regard to the coronavirus is, is that ultimately this is an opportunity for us to engage in a practice which should have the elements of concentration, clarity, and equanimity to grow our deep happiness, which gives us the ability to more, in a, in a healthier way, to handle the local 
responses to such things. That's right. The perturbations of this virus or any other such thing, be it a divorce or loss of income or loss of job or what have you. That's essentially the message. Sure, let's talk about all those questions. And sure, let's act effectively on all those questions. But at the same time, let's not forget that this is just right now the local concern. Meaning in this world at this time. Yes. So in other worlds at other times, and certainly in this world at other times, uh, other concerns will present themselves. And And they may be even bigger. (laughs) Well, that's why I say I'm a big picture guy. Corona, yeah, it's serious, but it does not represent in and of itself, a a catastrophic breakdown of human civilization. No. That's serious. A large-scale thermonuclear exchange. That's serious. That's fucking serious. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) That's going to, that has the potential to end us to cause essentially a, glo- a, a global and catastrophic collapse of everything we, meaning humanity, has crawled our way up to in the last 100,000 years. We don't want that. We don't want an asteroid. We don't want a false vacuum in the multiverse. <laughs> That's the ultimate catastrophe scenario. The universe disappears too quickly for us to even, <laughs> even huh. know it's going to happen. That could, it's actually physics yeah. behind that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So <laughs> I would prefer, you know, that we, we so th- those are big things. Okay. I'm not saying that this is, is a trivial thing, but from what I see, the potential for science to improve practice and for practice to improve science. That creates an exponential positive feedback loop. The mutually beneficial co-evolution of modern science and contemplative practice. That's what the so-called mindfulness movement is really about, in essence. I think John, I was just going to say, I think John Cabot Zen has done a lot of work to bring the science into the he is he he did all the work yeah uh, all the initial work yeah he started it yeah his name will be emblazoned in the history of world meditation forever because he started it but i think it's only starting we're just at the beginning of the co-evolution of science and practice mutually beneficial i i just starting I know someone who was doing scientific research on meditation before John Kabat-Zinn, and that's Itzhak Bentov. Itzhak Bentov. He wrote the book Stalking the Wild Pendulum. Oh, I remember that book. A Brief Tour of Higher Consciousness. He's the inventor of the pacemaker that's still used in people's hearts today. He was the first one to actually do legitimate scientific investigations into the effects on human beings of meditative practice. Well, when was that? Oh, probably 
70s and 80s? That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, John started in the 80s. But, you know, actually, as far as I know, the beginning of the scientific research on contemplative practice, Buddha. the early, earliest, well, actually, you're right in a sense. I take him to be the proto-scientist. We can't legitimately say he was exactly a scientist, okay? Because An empirical the, scientist. <laughs> yeah, we can't say he was a scientist in the modern sense of the word. No. Uh, at all. But he was certainly a proto-scientist in that he had many overlaps with the spirit of science. And it's not for nothing that the closest thing to early Buddhism that we know is in Southeast Asia, and that's where the mi modern mindfulness movement started. People went to Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and so forth. They got these practices. They're close to early Buddhism, not not as laden culturally and doctrinally as some of the later stuff like Vajrayana and Zen is. So it's sort of fit with science. So you're, I totally agree on that regard. But I was actually thinking um, actual scientific research involving uh, biometrics, as far as I know, started in Japan uh, Actually, I believe before World War II, because think about it, Japan was the first Asian country to modernize in the 1860s. They had decades and decades um, head start on every other part of Asia in terms of becoming a modern nation state, meaning a science-informed culture. So... It would be natural, since it's a Buddhist culture, that once physiology and such that had been developing in Europe, once that reached Japan in the 1800s and early 20th century, they would start to apply that to meditators. So they did at Komazawa University. I think actually some of the earliest research would have been in Japan, but your guy, I'm going to look into the uh, Bentoff. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, his, um, I would look at his book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum. It's just, I remember that book. It's, I, a, it's I, an amazing book. Big picture wise, my main thing is just let us get another 50 or 100 years without a catastrophic collapse of human civilization. If we can do that, then we got a shot that this exponential positive feedback loop between modern science and contemplative-based psycho-spiritual growth, this loop could go exponential in 50 or 100 years, change the course of human history radically, globally, for the better. Yes. So I see that not as guaranteed, but also not as ridiculous. Uh, it's not a ridiculous prospect. So when I hit Corona, I say, okay, bad, but nowhere near a global thing that takes us back to clubs and, you know, yeah. stone uh, tools. Right. Um, 
and not even the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of anything like that. Right. Um, it's just, you know, SARS with, it's yeah. SARS with an attitude. Yeah. It's, a local, it's one of your local events. It's local relative to the big picture. Yeah. And um, give this, this third beholding, this grand vision. The first beholding is theoria. In Greek, it means to meditate. The second beholding, also theoria in Greek, as in theory, meaning do science. <laughs> right. The third beholding, whoa, maybe these two beholdings are polarized in just the right way to give birth to a new child. We don't know. Could happen. So that's what I have to say about that. One of the what I'm inspired to ask you, and maybe this can be sort of our wrap up because I have a feeling it it might not take, but it might take more than two minutes. But really, what's behind all the the fear with any kind of epidemic or pandemic ultimately boils down to fear of death. So my question for you is, what what do you feel happens when we die? And and you know, I have my own experiences for sure, but I want to hear yours. What do you think happens when we die? And, you know, because we have a scientific materialist paradigm, most people have been conditioned to think death is screened to black. And therefore, they're deathly afraid because they think, oh, after I die, there's nothing left. I'm, I'm, there's no family. There's no memories. It's just screened to black. But, you know, right in the Buddhist tradition, you have a variety of opinions on these things. And I'm just curious. So if we're all if if you if if we say the common denominator of all the reaction to such a thing is fear of death, well, what's behind the curtain if, as far as Shinzen's considered? Sure, considers it. <clears throat> well, should we be afraid? Well, I don't know. Should we be afraid? Will we be afraid? That seems pretty natural. Yes. Of so course. that's a biological um, reaction. I think there are several issues. One is how to deal with fear. Yes. There's two kinds of fear, justified and unjustified. There's two kinds of fear, big and little. I'll multiply them together, I guess that's four kinds of fear. Ha! <laughs> uh, of course, there's a lot more. Um, but any of those four have something in common. They involve in the moment, one or a combination of mental image, mental talk, and body emotion. Your ability to experience that in a state of concentration, clarity, and equanimity, base level ability, how fear hits you, let's say when it's justified and big, how does it hit you like a hammer or like a warm shower? <laughs> yeah. You might think it could only be a hammer. And it's a cruel joke to say strong justified fear could be refreshing and cleansing. But when you experience it in a state of high mindfulness, that's what it is. And if, you're, if you've done the training so that your base level of CC&E, concentration, clarity, equanimity, is high enough, then when the fear of corona or death at your deathbed, when that fear comes up, it will be different for you, not a source of suffering or not as much a source of suffering. So 
mindfulness can definitely help with fear, even strong, justified fear. However, at a deeper level, which is what you're actually asking about, the result of mindfulness practice, or just practice, is that you come to have a more and more complete experience of the present moment. The more you're able to have a complete experience of the present moment, the more the present moment simplifies. The 10,000-somethings the, the 10, of the day, the 10 million-somethings of a lifetime, they all reduce to the one activity that is the source of consciousness, by which I mean simply the first 10, 20, uh, 10 or 100 or few thousand of milliseconds that precedes each conscious see, hear, feel, each conscious think, speak, move, preceding everything we perceive and do is the natural flow of the central nervous system for the first just couple seconds, a fraction of a second there for everyone all the time. There is a um, something very, very simple that surrounds every experience of human life, however big or small, pleasant or unpleasant. And that simple pattern becomes your daily reality. The self and the world arise from the source and are reabsorbed into the source thousands of times during the day for an advanced contemplative. And therefore, you have now become fully intimate with life and death, with arising and passing, with um, yang and yin pulling apart, molding a self in the world, yang and yin canceling, neutralizing, and taking self and world back to absolute rest. So, on one hand, easy to understand relatively. If you do a lot of practice, you'll be able to experience fear with less suffering. A little more exotic, if you do a lot of practice, life and death become intimate friends. And that very much... By life and death, I mean the pattern of arising and passing of sensory experience, what in the Buddhist tradition is called anicca or impermanence. You become so intimate with that extraordinary ordering principle that physical death, even if it is fade to black, it, even if it were that, which I don't know that it is, but even if it were, it doesn't make any difference. Even if it's the end of anything personal, it doesn't make any difference. <clears throat> the connection that you had while you had functioning senses, that connection can never be severed even if you don't have functioning senses. And you experience that in this lifetime and it changes the way you look at the prospect of your own demise. 
Yes, I I think I understand what you mean. What I what I interpret this as is that when you get deep enough into practice and come into contact with what I would call the whole or source, then you realize that it's inexhaustible, eternal, and it is not bound by the undulations of life and death or uh, yin and yang or implicate or explicate, but that, and you know, I've been deep enough in Tai Chi and meditation and on medicines to reach the point where you, you realize that there's something profound that isn't bound by space, time, or the constraints yeah. of, of the ordinary mind. And, and paradoxically, when, when I've been there, the experience is far more vivid and far more sense of aliveness than an ordinary waking state like we're in right now. So I have a suggestion as to your homework assignment. Okay, good. Oh, well, maybe you shouldn't say good too quickly. <laughs> you might not like your homework assignment. Well, you know, <laughs> based on free will, I can choose whether or not I oh, accept it. Oh, that's true. <laughs> you could, your, uh, your mission, should you choose to yeah. uh, accept. And by the way, this tape will not self-destruct <laughs> okay. in five, five seconds because yeah. it's on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you pass the first big barrier to touch that place, at least occasionally. Yeah. Basically, there's humans that know this, and then there's uh, <laughs> most other humans. But that's that's good. But then the next assignment is 24-7 function from that place. Take care of corona from that place, not leaving that place. Right. I really appreciate that. Um, oh, th that's not only a great assignment, but it's, it's a really great reminder for all of us that have had that experience to know that that's the greater truth from which to um, perceive, experience, and engage anything, whether it be good, bad, or otherwise. So you asked me about other resources besides uh, some of the books and uh, audios uh, that you had used. Right. Um, I have written a book called Breakthrough Pain. Yes. That tells people how to work with physical discomfort. I have people at our last uh, Zoom retreat, um, we had uh, several people with active COVID at the retreat. So that's the beauty of a distance retreat. They're not physically present, right? Right. One of those people was in the hospital with a breather, did the entire one-week retreat from the TV screen uh, in, the, in the hospital uh, uh, using, uh, using the breather. So that's like uh, so in inspiring. Spent an entire week dealing with COVID from the place of transcendence, working, uh, working on that theme. Anyway, he used the, some of the breakthrough pain uh, strategies right. to I, deal with, with the illness. I've actually listened to that. It's an audio book, right? 
it's also a print book or an electronic book at this point. Yes, I did listen to the audio book and it was very good. I really loved your approach and I think it's excellent for anybody that wants to understand and work with pain more effectively. Right. And then, as I said, the main message that I would have for people is, I don't have a message for you. There's no magic uh, aphorism here other than if I had a message it would be to establish and maintain a practice. And I think I've outlined pretty, pretty in some detail what that means. Yes. Um, in terms of resources, there's two places they can go if they like uh, my approaches. There's gazillion places they can go to get similar approaches. So you can go to unifiedmindfulness.com both to be trained in the techniques and to be trained to train others. So um.com. And then there's an app called Bright Mind, which is a complete self-contained course, has every single component that I mentioned is covered eventually if you do the whole Bright Mind app. So those are a couple resources if people actually do want to get a have a practice. The other thing I can't help but mention, because I know that some of your people are, I believe, in the um, sports coaching and sports medicine, those kinds of areas. Is yeah, that correct? A lot of them, yes. A lot of them. So Adidas Mindset Program is now based on my definition of mindfulness. They have an entire training program now, international. But you know what they did? No. Because equanimity is such a weird word. Yes. It's not okay. very commonly understood in our culture. Yes. Well, and of course, that's why I chose it. So I could say, here's a weird word. And in this context, it means this and only this. Right? I, <laughs> uh, so I actually chose it because it is an unusual word. But that's not good for marketing in general. So you know what they call it? Instead of saying C, C, and E as the defining dimensions of mindful awareness uh, or focus power, so I define focus power as concentration. You can think of it as the ability to focus on what you deem relevant at a particular moment. Clarity, you can think of it as the ability to untangle the strands of experience. It's basically an anti-flooding skill. Mm -hmm. And equanimity, which is basically an anti-self-interference skill with respect to the flow of the senses, those three focus skills I call CCE, concentration, clarity, equanimity. So equanimity is weird. So you know what they decided to call my concept of equanimity at Adidas for marketing? They no. called it cool. Keep oh. your cool. <laughs> so it's now CCC, <laughs> concentration, clarity, cool. But then what they do is in good Shenzhenian style, they say, yes, but by cool, we don't mean just that you're cooled out, dude. We mean that you're not fighting with yourself at any level. So they actually define cool in the identical way that I define the word equanimity. So that it's just interesting once again, I would have never believed that these Asian-y things would become so mainstream. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to share those two things. And now my question to you, which is based on a, a que- one of the questions that you had sent to me. Sure. Here, I'm just going to quote your question to me. Mm-hmm. The entire universe and all that can be seen, experienced, or known boils down to a combination of energy and information. Could you please share your viewpoint on what energy is and what information is? That was question number four you sent to me. Yeah, I'm here. Now, now, that got my attention. Good. The idea that we that it all simplifies to those two things, energy and information, I think that's a very interesting idea. So my question to you is, is that something you came up with? Or in your vast readings, have you found this notion stated anywhere else? Well, I found it stated in many, many different places, particularly the writings of of scientists. But uh, basically... Which which scientists can you... Uh, because there can be... Um, these can, this can be contentious in science. And I just... Any references you can give me will help me with my research. Well, I'd have to think. Uh, Fred Allen Wolf, uh, possibly Amit Goswami. Um, let's see. I have to... Uh, think I could look through my library, but... Uh, uh, well, if you... I'm interested very specifically in those two physical variables. Yeah, um, so am I. That's why I was asking you the question. Yeah, uh, and not other formulations, you know, etc. Nassim so, Harriman. Nassim Harriman. Yeah, if you see any others that are, you know, strongly respected scientists or professional philosophers who may have talked along some sort of uh, energy information uh, interplay view of the physical world i'm i'm very interested in that if if you you know yeah now that i'm aware i'll i'll start keeping track but yeah, there there is yeah. quite a lot of them i mean i yeah. could probably find 15 of them that's right now you do understand uh, how can I say it politely? I'm only interested in people that are credible scientists yeah. that are talking in this vein, not just anyone. Yeah. Uh, well, are so, you familiar with Walter Russell? I remember a Russell. Walter Russell is quite famous for his work. He, he, uh, he was a very deep spiritual guy. He, he produced all sorts of really amazing stuff. If you just search Walter Russell, he's got a, a number of books that he wrote. He was, he became, he had a very profound enlightenment experience early in his life. He only had a fourth grade education in, I think 1927 or something. He wrote a several hundred page document. That's very, very exotic to the government warning them about playing with nuclear power through his own meditation practices, he identified two elements on the periodic table before they were actually identified. And scientists that were later rewarded for them stole his work. And only later, years later, after they got awarded for that, uh, wrote him and apologized for it. And I think the letters are right in some of his books. 
He was he a professional scientist? No, he was he was I would say a metaphysician, but his work is extremely scientific. I think you'd find it quite fascinating. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for these names. I think it is an intriguing notion that there is something fundamental about those two qualities. Obviously, there's also something fundamental about space-time. However, space-time may arise as the result of those qualities fact, rather than be the container of those qualities. That's, just, a big, that's a big may, by the way, not yeah. does, right? And I'm thinking quite sure Stephen Hawking, because he speaks of black holes, and he says the only thing that can survive a black hole is energy and information, therefore everything that you see as the created world ultimately boils down to energy and information. Yeah, you're right. They do. Uh, that is part of the, you're right. Those two are aspects of black hole physics. So the answer is, I don't know if they are fundamental and I don't know what they are. Although I do know how they are formalized mathematically. Um, and in fact, there are dozens of ways mm -hmm. to characterize either of them. Right. Uh, well, yeah, well, more than one way. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> There's many mathematical formalisms that correspond to the same physical reality. So if people want to discuss information and energy, they can use those words as used in science, or they can define those words to mean whatever the hell they want them to mean. But if they define those words to mean whatever the hell they want them to mean, uh, then they're not doing science. Um, so if they want to talk about those terms as terms in science, then guess what? I got the same rather severe message that I have with respect to contemplative practice. You got to do the homework. Yeah. You can't talk about these things. It, you don't talk to me about energy unless you know what the scalar product of two vectors is. Do not talk to me about, inform about information unless you know what Shannon entropy is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least in a scientific conversation. If in a broad metaphor poetry, uh, hey, use the words any way you want. Mm -hmm. But let's let's be clear, poetry is one thing. You can talk about any energy and information any freaking way you want. Yeah. As long as it's poetry. But if you're gonna claim it's science and you don't know what an inner product is, uh, you don't know how to compute Shannon entropy, you do not know what energy and information are to a scientist. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that because Nassim Harriman, who is quite a highly regarded quantum physicist and has made a lot of amazing advances in science, says one of the fundamental flaws in science is that everybody keeps using the term energy and they nobody yet knows what it is. And he even says, look, E equals MC squared. 
doesn't mean anything because we don't actually know what energy or matter is. We can't uh, get an objective, agreed upon answer to those things. We have ideas, but we don't have anything objective that is uh, something that we all agree upon. Um, similar pro pro uh, issues around the word information and space and time. Yeah. So we are left with equanimity, with uncertainty, which is very fundamental in both science and contemplative practice. And I think that ties it all together. And I think we are good for the afternoon. Yes, and I appreciate that. It was, it was a fun exploration with you, and I think the listeners got a, a, a nice deep look at the kind of a construct of a practice, be it contemplative or otherwise. As you said, they, they ultimately have the word practice, and there's practice involved. You know, one of the quotes that comes to my mind I wanted to share with you, and I just didn't want to interrupt you earlier because we were talking about ideas. Jung said, intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And I think one of the problems we have in our sort of mental structure stage of consciousness is that people worship ideas just because they can say them, but they often don't engage in the practice to, to get a visceral sense or an inner experience of what the idea actually means or carries within it. Yep. I would have to agree with that. But then I would add something. Okay, it's not a practice unless it's done every day systematically. Mm -hmm. It's not a practice unless every now and again you do intensive, dedicated, silent blocks. Could just be four hours once a month, but got to do those retreats. You got to have a competent coach in mindfulness technique and it's desirable, although not actually required, that you have some experience teaching mindful awareness to others. So as far as a mindfulness practice goes, unless you can check off all four of those boxes, you don't have a mindfulness practice. You have something that might be quite good. I want to be very clear. Your best shot at broad deep happiness in this life. Broad means locally for your mind and body and globally for all the minds and bodies you care about. And deep means taking care of conditions and touching a place all day, every day that is beyond conditions. This is what it means to have a practice. So a lot of people will say, well, yeah, I relax in the hot tub at night. Not a practice unless it's part of the larger, the larger structure that I just mentioned, all the components. Uh, people will say, yeah, I sort of go over the day, you know, before I begin, and that's my practice. Well, that sure, it's, that's a, a thing that is good and people do it. But let's be clear about what we mean by a practice. Yeah, I understand. You know, I understand, especially because you're coming from the uh, traditional viewpoints on these things. So it's kind of like talking to a highly skilled martial arts master and saying you practice this and that once in a while versus really being committed as, as a, a master would expect you to be. 
And the great news in the modern age is you don't have to believe any BS. You do have to believe that attentional skills are eminently cultivatable. You do have to believe that attentional skills are related to happiness. And that's about it. That's yeah. not asking a lot. Well, you know, it reminds me of, of uh, Socrates and, you know, the Oracle of Delphi deemed him the wisest man in the world, but he ultimately ended up with, I don't know. And so even though, you know, Socrates was a very deep guy, his, his ultimate position was, I don't know. And so I think that's the difference between sort of an intellectual approach to life and, and the deeper wisdom is the I know versus the I don't know. <laughs> that's a good one. All right. Well, a good, a good role model, I would say. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's it's, it's uh, really been a special day for me to get to spend time with you and hear your voice and not listening to you in my car, but sensing your vibration. And, and I really appreciate all the teaching you share with the world. Shenzhen there. I've got a lot, I've gotten a lot out of them myself. You know, if I go through something two or three times, you can pretty much take it to the bank. There's meat and potatoes in there. And your program, the science of enlightenment, I think is something that everyone that has a genuine interest in this concept of enlightenment should investigate. Well, thank you so much. And it was delightful for me also. And I think will be of use to the world. So thank you for who you are and what you are doing. And I think we are good. Thanks, buddy. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to maybe an opportunity to do it again in the future. Very good. Okay. So bye-bye, everyone. And um, we shall carry on. Thank you, Shinzen. Enjoy the rest of your day. I shall. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Shinzen Young. You can follow Shinzen on Twitter at Shinzen Young or contact him via his website at shinzen.org. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living 4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's brand new streaming media site, chakiva.com. Music